In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's weekly podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor, back in Dublin from a six-month exile in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments from London, Brussels and from here in Dublin. This week, a chink of light or a false dawn. There's a thing called optimism that is possibly stalking the corridors of Whitehall and Brussels. We look at what possible compromise there could be on the vexed question of state aid and if that might unlock an overall deal by the end of the month. Not so fast. Fisheries is proving to be as difficult as ever, with the so-called Group of Eight coastal states issuing a blunt warning to Michel Barnier not to compromise on European access to UK waters. And why the issue of an EU presence in Belfast is back on the agenda as both sides grapple with the ongoing controversy over the Northern Ireland Protocol. But first, Tony, Charles Michel, the President of the European Council, was in Dublin during the week. He was meeting the Taoiseach Michal Martin and they came out of Farmley House, the building former home of the Guinness family where a lot of government business and conferences and the like is done. He made a lengthy statement outside. I have been very clear yesterday with Prime Minister Johnson. It's now for the UK to restore trust and to put all its cards on the table. The EU is doing its utmost to find an agreement with the UK, but not at any cost. And then he went on to say, and to get the agreement, we need significant steps to be made by our British friends in the coming days. And to get to an agreement, we need significant steps to be made by our British friends in the coming days, not only on fisheries, but also on the level playing field and governance. On other issues, such as road transport, energy or trade in goods, progress has been made, but it's not enough. As in any such negotiation, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. And then he returned to the team later in the statement outside Farmley. In my opinion, the next days will be very important. Uh, this is a, a challenging, uh, a challenging um, uh, uh, situation. Uh, we think that we need more, more clarity and we will see if it's possible to make a real and concrete progress on the level playing field, on the fisheries and on the, on the governance. Uh, and I would like to, to add that uh, the full implementation of the withdrawal agreement is also essential in our opinion. But one thing he did, he left out, which we've been talking about every other week, is state aid. Is that an oversight, an omission, or is it no longer a problematic area? No, I think when he talks about the level playing fields, that takes in state aid, um, and state aid is really the biggest issue on the level playing field, the most controversial issue. So um, it it is still front and centre in terms of the difficult issues uh, and that's where everybody's mind is focused at the moment so far from it being uh, resolved it's still the big issue because it's a fundamental and philosophical difference between both sides the the uk 
really wanting to be able to do its own thing when it comes to directing money at particular industries or companies and not wanting to be bound by any kind of European regulatory orbit on state aid. Uh, and this is a subject we've obviously discussed right. quite a lot on, on the podcast. Right. Um, I was looking the, for grains of optimism in, in previous statements and, and utterances. E, people from the EU have talked about the level playing field and state aid. To emphasise state aid, it's always rolled up in this, is it? Yeah, I mean, state aid is slightly different in that you know, it's one thing like state, uh, the level playing field obviously covers things like the environment, labor protections, social protections, climate change, taxation. So in other words, when you're producing goods as an EU company, you have to comply with all these standards. But if you're the UK suddenly unshackled from all these requirements, then you can produce the same goods uh, much cheaper and much quicker and so on. The EU has wanted the UK to effectively commit to to not lowering its standards you know that's one thing but then to have a system whereby as a government you can't put money into a company or rescue a a company where you might have you know thousands laid off that's kind of a higher order of constraint and that's why state aid has been somewhat separated uh, as an issue from the other level playing field effects uh, you know such as environment labor labor protections and so on and, and what the European Union had wanted was, at first, alignment between the UK and the EU about on the issue of state aid and dynamic alignment at that. It's now moved to an idea of, well, can you at least publish what your policy on state aid is so we can see what it is you intend to do in the years before us? Yeah, so when the negotiations started, Michel Barnier's mandate spelled out that the EU wanted dynamic alignment on state aid with the the UK. Uh, That was obviously a non-starter for for the UK and the EU, I think, accepted that back in June when the leaders of the main institutions had that video conference with Boris Johnson. But the EU's response was, well, okay, we accept you don't want to do that, but we need to know what your future state aid regime and your future subsidy regime is going to look like. Otherwise, we can't then forge some understanding, some system whereby neither side is going to be undercut by the other and we have a dispute settlement mechanism and a, you know, a clear set right. of rules. And if, if we don't know what your stated system is going to look like, then how can we design uh, that system? And not and just a system, but an enforceable system. They wanted a, a, a UK regulator with enforcement powers that could keep an eye and make sure that the government didn't stray off the straight and narrow path. Yeah, exactly. So there would be an independent authority uh, which would have robust powers to hold the UK government to account if it was subsidising in, in a, an improper way and hold the UK government to account in terms of applying whatever you know new legal system was in place as part of this treaty. Right. Um, Are we any closer to that this week? The UK has talked about uh, high-level principles that would you know, underpin the relationship on state aid rather than getting into binding detail. They've talked about using World Trade Organization principles and provisions on subsidies. They've talked about what normal free trade agreements have on on state aid, which are not that detailed. But that's really not been enough for the EU. And again, we've talked about this before, the EU sees the UK as a much different creature than Canada or Japan. It's it's right on the EU's doorstep. It's the fifth biggest economy. 
its economy is already deeply integrated into the single market. And so it doesn't it trust the UK either. Well, um, yeah, I guess trust is always an issue that, that keeps coming up. As, as Sabine Vand, uh, the Michel Barnier's former, former deputy, famously said, member states don't trust each other spontaneously. They, they trust each other because they all follow the same rules. That's the EU's approach. What, what is different this week and why we have optimism is that David Frost, the UK's chief negotiator, gave a presentation to the House of Lords European Union Select Committee. And he was asked about state aid and he went into a lot more detail than he has before. He did talk about high level principles which could underpin a future understanding between the UK and the EU on state aid. He did say that we could move beyond a traditional free trade agreement in how it approaches uh, state aid. And he spelled out in a bit of detail the conditions in which state aid could be used. And it was, you know, it was quite a specific list of things. And he said, you know, we would be prepared to sign up to those commitments. Now, as he was giving this evidence to the select committee, Michel Barnier himself was talking to EU ambassadors in Brussels and uh, making it clear that there were discussions underway on this front, that there was a lot of detail. I believe a couple of drafts have been exchanged. Where the EU is not happy yet is that you know they want to make sure that there is detail on this independent authority in the UK, as you mentioned, and they want to be able to retaliate quickly and significantly if it suddenly feels that the UK is getting an advantage by going too far in subsidising a, a company or a sector. And, and they want this retaliatory mechanism to be, to be swift and not simply that you go to arbitration and it takes, you know, a couple of years to sort it out. Right, that would uh, presumably be a two-way street, would it, the UK? If that it, would be a two-way yeah. street, yeah. Of course, that would be a, an option that would be open to both sides. And of course, it's important to point out, as British officials are always doing, yeah. and as David Frost and Michael Gove say, you know, when it comes to state aid infringements in the EU, the UK were in, in, the, in the good corner. Countries like France and Germany were on the naughty step because they tended to put direct state resources into particular areas more frequently and fell foul of of EU state aid rules. And again, Sean has mentioned this in the past, the UK was instrumental in helping draw up the EU's competition rules and, and, uh, you know, and, and, and state aid rules. Yeah, and its officials quite like it because they don't like the idea of errant ministers going off and financing pet projects from the exchequer. They like to have firm state aid rules to prevent this kind of patronage. Yeah, when the EU was negotiating with Theresa May, we all remember her. This issue was not really problematic because they saw her as a straightforward capital C conservative who would be instinctively opposed to the state marching in and bailing out companies. Whereas Boris Johnson's, let's say, revolutionary government is, you know, has a different view. And we know that his senior advisor, Dominic Cummings, has particular ideas on having the freedom and discretion to direct money at particular sectors, right. potentially the, the technology sector. And the Taoiseach was speaking alongside Charles Michel outside of Farmley, and he was acknowledging that the mood appears to have changed, he said. Yeah, I would say that the, the, the mood uh, appears to have changed, um, and um, you know, there's been um, more intensified engagement. Um, certainly the president of, of, of the commission last week had a good discussion with, with Boris Johnson. I, I know Charles spoke to Boris Johnson uh, yesterday, but Mood is one thing, uh, it does need substance uh, to, to follow the mood and um, one needs concrete outcomes 
um, from the negotiations and, and positions need to change. Uh, uh, and I think Europe uh, has given good indications, the European Union Task Force uh, and Michel Barnier over the last while, uh, they need to be reciprocated. Are we anywhere near there yet? Because David Frost and Michel Barnier, after speaking, I think, in London, weren't due to make any statements because they're due to talk in, in Brussels again next week. Does that represent a sort of, insofar as there are non-papers, does that represent a, a non-tunnel? No statements is, is possibly encouraging, no? Yeah, I mean, c- certainly the, like we're, we, you could say we're in a kind of a quasi-tunnel because the negotiations have intensified. Remember, in the early stages of the negotiations, they were meeting once every three weeks with, uh, you know, weeks uh, in between for member states to get briefed and so on but they are they are meeting all the time and the the work is a lot more intense so whether it's a tunnel or not hard to say i think i think perhaps yeah. a tunnel has become a little bit of an an old fashioned term uh, in this stage but i mean I, I certainly detect movement on state aid and i detect perhaps a, a landing zone to use that phrase is right. becoming a little bit clearer but again you know, we're, we're, there's going to be have to be a lot more detail on how this thing will work. Again, you know, David Frost talking about high level principles. People here say principles are great, but but they need to be operational. We need to know how quickly can both sides react if they feel that a, a an errant uh, subsidy has to be tackled and and challenged. Um, and what kind of retaliation and safeguards are in there. Um, And, you know, again, that's kind of creeping into the sovereignty of the UK if if they're going to have an independent authority that is kind of taking a line from Brussels or has lines of communication open to the European Commission on, uh, you know, on on how things are, are operating, then, you know, that's a hard thing for the UK. It's not as hard as having the European Court of Justice keeping a, a BDI on everything that they are inching forward. And again, this is going to be a period over the next week when we get into the European Council next week, the European summit, where leaders are going to have to get into the detail on this and to be fully aware of what they're talking about and how they feel about it. Because again, if there is an agreement, if there's a free trade agreement, this is going to last for decades. It's going to be a long-term arrangement between two huge economic powers side by side and it's going to have to work, and it's going to have to be legally clear. Right. Okay. Well, on an ambitious deadline being set on that, Charles Michel, to go back to that that meeting during the week, he said this is the moment of truth, and there's only one week to go before the European Council on the 15th and 16th. In my opinion, the next days will be very important. He said it's a challenging situation. No more challenging situation uh, than fisheries. I heard, and courtesy of... uh, I think it was Jim Brunson of the Financial Times, but it's something that's been brought up by Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute in, in The Hague before. The Belgians were tabling a charter from 1666, a promise of indefinite... The Flemish. It, the Flemish. The, uh, yeah, the, Belgium the, didn't exist in 1666. But they were... The, the, the Flemish were... Uh, they've got what... They were part of the Spanish Netherlands at the time, I think. Right. So is this really a Spanish no, matter? They, indefinite access, anyway. Eternal access to British waters, according to this charter. Eternal, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. This is this is this is the thing. Are they tabling this with a tongue firmly in their cheek, or is this hardball? Well, I think this is certainly it's a bit of both. You do get this sort of circular argument about, um, <laughs> you know, we, the the UK got a rotten deal in 1973 when they joined the EEC, and then in 1983 when the Common Fisheries Policy was, was sort of finally firmly established. What happened 
is that sometime around the mid-70s, the 200-mile the exclusive economic zone around coastal states was was something that was agreed in, in international law, that this followed the Cod Wars with, with Iceland. But before that was established, you know, like beyond 12 miles off the coast was, you know, the open sea, a kind of an unregulated uh, global space where basically anybody could fish and do what they wanted. Okay, the UK had that 200-mile exclusive economic zone established before that it was it was kind of seen as fair game you know if you could build a big boat and you know catch as many fish as you want then that was the way that was the law of the of the sea uh, the law of the jungle if you like what happened then when the common fisheries policy was established was that those other coastal states like france and uh, the netherlands and belgium and denmark all kind of asserted these historic rights going back centuries to fish in UK waters. And that got kind of baked into the common fisheries policy so that Britain did not get as much quota and species as they would have liked in their own waters. But again, they weren't really UK waters before the mid-70s and before the Cod Wars. So, you know, again, these are two fundamentally opposed positions and, you know, you'll, you'll never get sure. arbitration on this. I'm sure Britain would argue that if they were going to get too historical, and once upon a time they had the biggest navy in the world and they owned considerably more ocean. So if people were going to assert historic rights on the basis of the way exactly. things were in the 17th century, Britain might be left with a few more cards in the deck, yeah. maybe than most but other that, countries. Yeah, but I think it is true that, I mean, the, these arguments are, are are to be taken seriously enough uh, and I, I think next week the uh, European Fisheries Alliance which brings together fishing organizations from from the coastal states I think they're going to be making a case that when the UK got its share of the common fisheries policy in 1983 they were given a 26 percent uplift in uh, o- over seven species because the UK argued that it was losing access to third country waters such as Icelandic and Norwegian and Faroe Isles uh, waters uh, as a result of the common fisheries policy coming coming together and, and I suppose excluding those waters. So I think the argument is going to be made, look, the UK got this uplift of 26% when it entered the club. When it's leaving the club, it can't expect to, to take those benefits with them. So you're going to hear more of these kind of historic arguments. Right. I suppose at least I, the fact that they're being used as a tactic would speak to the fact that the eight coastal countries, or at least some of them, are prepared to play a level of hardball where they're, they're going to try and bog the UK down in unpicking these things bit by bit and drive the hardest bargain possible, as you'd expect them to do. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that I, I suppose it it has been seen that the UK has a stronger case on fisheries than in a lot of areas in in Brexit land, and that for the EU to go into these negotiations saying more or less, we want the status quo, we want to be able to have the same access to British waters as we've enjoyed under the common fisheries policy, and we want to, to catch the same quotas that we get at the moment. This is obviously going to be a pretty hard thing to hold on to, and Michel Barnier has been probing the limits of what those coastal states are prepared to accept. He was setting up video calls with eight fisheries ministers this week, including Charlie McConnell, the Irish uh, fisheries minister, agriculture minister. But before those calls started, the fisheries attaches from those countries actually got together with their Brexit coordinators in Brussels and agreed a unanimous position that 
Michel Barnier should stick to the mandate, that he shouldn't budge, and that the real leverage here is that the UK doesn't get a free trade agreement at all if there isn't a fisheries agreement. So it's time to play that that card that is in the hole. Right. Um, you could see and, from the UK Michel point. Barnier has been Sorry. saying, look, you know, this is not realistic, uh, and I think he's been quite dismayed at the, at the hard line because ultimately, mm. if the overall deal does falter because of the fisheries question, which is, you know, you can't exclude, then, you know, nobody wins, and certainly not fishing communities around uh, the coastal states. You can see from the from the point of view of the UK, if the European Union is insisting that things will change when somebody leaves the club and they people can't expect all the benefits of being in the club when you leave, the UK can say, well, similarly, our waters, you can't enjoy the benefits of them if we're leaving the club. Yeah, exactly. And again, important to to stress it's not a huge part of the UK economy. It employs 160,000 people. As someone has said, its annual turnover is the same as Harrods. But, but it it's is political clout in the UK, particularly in the recently won areas that the, yeah. the Tory party got in its 80-seat majority in the, in the, the so-called red wall of, of the north of England. Yeah, I mean, for, I mean, for lots of reasons, it's just a fact of life that the UK is going to play hardball on fisheries, but also the EU, as as we can see from member states, is going to play hardball as well. Because one one of the things they've been looking at is for both sides to draw up priority stocks that that they feel strongly about. And you know, we've talked about zonal attachment in the past in these podcasts. Basically, that means the fish that, that are caught as adults, it's where those fish are that, that counts, not where they spawned. So, for example, mackerel spawns in Irish waters, but they are mature off Scottish waters. And that's when they're caught, by and large. I'm really simplifying things here. Right. Who has the better claim to those fish? Well, you know, if the, the fish the, were playing the, football, they'd qualify for Ireland. On, 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 the issue, on the issue of birth, we're not going to get into the granny rule on this one, but the fact that they've well, matured... I thought you were going to bring me into last night's penalty shootout <laughs> no. in Slovakia, but... Uh... No. Anyway, they mature in Scotland, which means what currently? Well, it, it, it means that that's where they're caught um, because you, you catch mackerel when they're at their sort of fattest and oiliest and, and that's where the value is. If you catch them too early, then they don't have the same quality and value. But the Irish could say, well, you know, what makes them Scottish fish if they, if they were born off the coast of Ireland? Why, why shouldn't we lay claim to them, even if it means catching them off Scottish waters. So these are the arguments and I mean, it's, it's pretty much a zero-sum game fisheries because someone's going to lose okay, you can you can look at stocks and say, well, these are our top 50 priority species. Fishing communities often concentrate one particular species and stock. And, you know, if, if they lose out, it's devastating for them, even though it might not be devastating for the entire Irish fleet, say, for example. But, you know, th- this is going to get nasty, I think. Right. Someone, someone's going to get a battering. Someone's going to get a battering. <laughs> <laughs> I resisted the... Co- the- <laughs> enough cardology from Dublin that's that's fisheries it's not the only spat because on a previous podcast and we mentioned this at the outset uh, in in, in the billboard of what's coming up Tony the EU presence in Belfast it was being ruled out by the UK side relatively recently even though it had been ruled in or at least was uncontested when first flagged by the EU will there be an EU presence in Belfast to keep an eye on the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Is that any closer? This issue came up back in February. In the Protocol in Northern Ireland, Article 12 
says that effectively that the EU has the right to have officials in place to oversee the implementation of the protocol. In other words, to make sure that when there are customs and veterinary checks happening at Larne or Belfast or Warren Point or, or Belfast Airport on goods coming in from Great Britain or from uh, third countries around the world, uh, that those checks are, are being properly uh, implemented or if if there's a you know if there's a problem or a sudden unusual spike in some goods coming into Northern Ireland, that EU officials are there to to make sure everything's fine. And also, officials would say this is going to be a case of UK vets and customs officers operating the EU's customs code and SPS rules, sanitary and phytosanitary rules. So it's no harm if they have. EU experts at hand to help them out or to guide them or whatever. This, you might think, was not going to be a very controversial issue, but uh, and especially in the light of the fact that under Theresa May's government, the UK had actually said they'd be quite happy for the EU to have a consulate or some kind of office in Belfast, as well as Cardiff and Glasgow. But under, under this government, they're taking a much more hardline approach. Effectively, what the UK is saying is that if you have an EU office in Belfast, that is tantamount to something like joint patrols by EU and UK officials when it comes to ports and airports. And they're saying that's simply a non-starter, that's an infringement of sovereignty. We will decide on what kind of access you get, how often it should be. Now, the Commission's opening gambit was, we'd like to have an office in Belfast, can we open discussions on that? The UK said, absolutely not. We would propose that you have three visits a year. Obviously, between those two extreme positions, they're going to have to have a fight and a negotiation. And that's what's happening right. at the moment. OK, I wonder, did they clear the lines on that last Saturday? It hardly got that granular between Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the commission, no. uh, and Boris so, Johnson. I mean, this is being... This is being discussed by some a thing called the Specialised Committee. So you have the overall Not joint Not to be committee. confused with the Joint Committee, right, okay. Not, yeah, exactly. So the Joint Committee is the overall big piece of architecture that is there, provided by the withdrawal agreement for both sides to implement the withdrawal agreement, to settle disputes, and to deal with the individual protocols. So Northern Ireland Protocol, there's one on Cyprus, there's one in Gibraltar, and so on. But the, the, the guys who do the kind of spade work on this, the, the, the officials who have to do all the arranging at, at ground level uh, and then they they pass the issues up to the joint committee to make the big decisions uh, that's the specialized committee and they've been meeting today friday in brussels and they've been grappling with this uh, issue of the of the eu presence and the eu is saying look we need an effective presence in belfast we're not demanding a physical office but at the same time Mm. You're going to need to, people to have desks, computers, chairs. If we're going to visit three times a year, or however many times we visit, we need somewhere to go. Yeah, but I mean, certainly the EU won't accept three visits a year. I mean, they, they want to have they want to have a presence that that means that they're they're there and and can operate effectively. You know, not that they have to wait for two months. You know, if there's a sudden spike of some particular good coming into Northern Ireland that looks a bit suspicious, right. They don't want to say, well, we're not back there until April the 26th and it's now, you know, January the 3rd. Yeah, it's, it sounds um, like a bad custody row. You know, they get three times a year, they get to take Northern Ireland to McDonald's and sit on a park bench and talk to it about its recent football games. It's a kind of a, it seems a less than satisfactory arrangement from the point of view of one parent uh, to continue that analogy. 
Yeah, in the spirit of your your metaphor there, I mean, they are getting into some nasty negotiations elsewhere. What's happening now is that the UK is saying, well, you know, we have a big problem with supermarket consignments. So you've got sea freight bringing huge consignments of food from UK depots over to Northern Ireland to, to British supermarket chains like, like Sainsbury's or Asda or Tesco. And you might have a consignment with 400 different kinds of, of, of food product in there. Uh, do they all need food safety checks? Do they all need customs declarations? What would that do to the business model for a start? What would it do to the just-in-time delivery for these supermarkets? You know, These are majorly difficult questions, and the protocol doesn't fully flesh out how that's going to happen. So the UK is saying, well, if you want us to grant you some better presence in Belfast or more frequent access, then you're going to have to move on on supermarkets, uh, and that's so. So it's getting into that level of negotiation, and you're going to have lots of these meetings now between now and um, and the end of the year. Well, just to look ahead in the immediate time horizon, I mean, between now and this day next week, or indeed Thursday of next week, we've got the European Council summit. The the date by which Boris Johnson wanted to have the deal done, otherwise potentially no deal, something he professes to be able to live with and has been saying that for quite some time. What's it like, as our colleague Tommy Gorman in the North says, what's the mood music like in advance of next month's summit? Well, it's kind of funny because there hasn't been a European summit devoted to Brexit for quite a long time. You know, it often comes up, but it's not heavily written into the, the draft conclusions that are prepared beforehand. Diplomats in Brussels are a little bit perplexed as to how they should approach this. I mean, obviously, it's going to be a key moment. There's definitely not going to be a deal by then. I mean, that seems pretty sure because it's just coming up next Thursday and Friday. But what's going to happen in terms of the choreography, Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, is going to brief leaders on the state of play in the negotiations. You know, she'll get a fairly good picture from Michel Barnier as to what he thinks is possible, how, how wide or narrow the gaps are. And then she'll either say, well, we're close, we're a lot closer than we have been, we need one big push, and leaders will direct her and she'll direct Michelle Barney to keep at it and they, you know, they'll, they'll come back before the end of the month or perhaps early November. Or she'll say, look, the gaps are too wide, they're just too fundamental, we just don't think there's any more point in negotiating and we now need to get into contingency planning for no deal. Or, or we keep talking but we should increase contingency planning. I mean, I think most people now think that there is more optimism than, than pessimism and that's you know, they they should be able to land something on state aid and fisheries, or certainly if state aid gets sorted, the level playing field gets sorted, then are they going to hold up, you know, keep us all in this misery for months to come simply because of fisheries? Hard to say. Right. Um, could there be a tweak? The could there be a tweak to the Barnier mandate at the council, seeing as they're all in one place and on something like fisheries, you were saying there are eight countries got together and told Barnier to stick to the mandate he has. What if he didn't have the same mandate he has? Is there a possibility of any tweaking at the summit? I, I think it's it's unlikely that, that leaders will want to get into that level of, you know, rolling up their sleeves and, and, you know, redrafting paragraphs here and there. The mandate that Michel Barnier got in February was the result of nearly two years of, of drafting and preparation on the EU side. And, you know, it's seen as a fairly sacred document. I think they'll find a form of words in the council conclusions that will allow him to, you know, really push the limits of his mandate. 
But I don't think they're going to go in there and start changing individual paragraphs in the mandate around. I, I think that's unlikely. All right. Okay, thanks, Tony. Thanks for another week and uh, have a good weekend. We'll chat next week. You'll probably be live from the summit at that stage, so God knows what time we'll catch you at, but we'll catch you at some point anyway for another episode of Brexit Republic. For me, Colin Mungo and RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. That's it from me. And for me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.